0: So I'm Katie, and I'm one of the pastors here. And this fall, we're returning to preaching through the lectionary. And that means we'll be following Jesus's journey to Jerusalem, as it's recorded in Matthew's Gospel. Each week, our Gospel readings will invite us to recognize and embrace, and then finally live by the upside-down values of the kingdom of God. And we're calling off our fall series, The Way of the Cross, because that is the way of Christ that each of us is invited to follow if we are indeed brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. Today's gospel reading is part of a larger passage in which Jesus deals with questions related to the life of the church. Just prior to what we read, believers have been invited to approach God with the wonder, vulnerability, and humility of a child. They've been warned of the consequences of doing anything that would cause a weak and vulnerable brother or sister or child in the faith to sin. They've been instructed to be radically scrupulous in examining their own behavior and addressing those things which caused them to sin. And then Jesus pauses his teaching and he offers a parable, the parable that opened our reading. In it, he compares God to a shepherd who leaves 99 sheep to seek after one lost one. And then rejoicing over that lost sheep, he rejoices over it more than the ones that did not go go astray. And so that teaches us about the character of God, but it also teaches us about the character that is expected of us as followers of Christ. And Jesus then talks about how we are to go after our lost brothers and sisters. And in linking the parable of the lost sheep to a clear set of steps that we're supposed to take when we're addressing a brother or sister in the, who sins, Jesus is inviting us to step into the parable and to see ourselves not just as sheep, which is usually how we see ourselves, But he's inviting us to see ourselves as shepherds alongside him. He's inviting us to see ourselves as shepherds over each other, watching out for our brothers and sisters who might be straying, and being responsible for protecting the entire flock from danger. Our reading from Ezekiel also talks about this responsibility for each other. He says that each of us are supposed to serve as guardians for the community, calling out when we see danger approaching. And he says that if you see danger and you don't warn your brothers and sisters, then you're responsible for the harm that comes to them. This is the sin of leaving things undone that we confess every Sunday. And this responsibility to care and warn others about sin is not optional. If you're a member of this community and you know of another's sin, then you're responsible for warning them. You aren't responsible for their response, but you are responsible for pointing out their sin. And if you avoid this responsibility, Ezekiel says, then you risk your own soul. Now, if we stopped there We might think that Jesus is giving us license to go around pointing fingers at everybody else about their failings. But I think that by placing the parable of the lost sheep in front of the instructions about how we're supposed to handle sin in our community, it's actually meant to slow us down and to take stock of our own lives. It's intended to remind us that while we're stepping into the responsibility of being shepherds, we are also sheep who need to continually repent and return to the flock. And so before we are too quick to confront another person, the invitation is to examine our own motives and goals in order to ensure that they're pure. Perhaps before we confront each other, we need to sit a little bit with 1 Corinthians 13, and ask whether you genuinely love this person as God loves them. Are you really seeking their best, or do you want to simply shame them and repay evil with evil? And if they have sinned against you, are you really ready to forgive them if they repent? And if not, what work of forgiveness is God calling you to do first? is because forgiveness begins as an inner work within us before it becomes a work that's done between us. Will you experience joy when this person repents? Or do you secretly hope that they won't turn back? These are all good questions to sit with before you confront another person. I used to work as a mediator and we would talk a lot amongst ourselves about how a lot of the work of addressing a conflict between people actually happened long before people were in the room together. There was a lot of internal work that people had to do before they were even capable of addressing the conflict between them. And I think that's what this passage is getting at. We must all prepare ourselves, ensuring that our motives and our methods and our goals are blameless before we confront a brother or a sister. Otherwise, we risk falling into sin too. But of course, Ezekiel and Matthew 18 remind us that people aren't always ready to acknowledge and turn away from their sins. When confronted, people often respond with anger and defensiveness. They turn on you, the person who's bringing the complaint to them. And we need to prepare ourselves internally so that we are equipped when attacked in order to respond with gentleness, kindness, patience, and self-control, even as the situation becomes more heated. And so what do we do if the situation remains unresolved and the person responds poorly? Well, Jesus says, you need to invite a few other people into the process as witnesses. Now, while the passage from Deuteronomy 19 that is referenced by Matthew refers to witnesses in a legal proceeding, it seems clear that that's not what is meant here. No one is being brought before a judge. We don't have a judge in this church. (laughs) Rather, these witnesses are confirming the sin that's occurred and they're probably serving as mediators. They're ensuring that no one is being treated unfairly or arbitrarily or dishonestly that there isn't a sin in the person bringing the complaint that needs to be addressed. And when we're called to serve as witnesses, as mediators between each other in our community, it would be wise to spend some time in self-examination and repentance so that you can see the situation in front of you clearly. Otherwise, you risk being drawn into the conflict and responding out of your own brokenness. At the end of the day, if we take this task of caring for others seriously, we should find ourselves constantly returning to God and asking him to help us see our unseen sins. But what happens when a brother or sister still refuses to address their sin? Well, then Jesus says that we take the small group then takes their concerns to the church, and the whole community decides how to administer justice because conflict between believers and unaddressed sin and evil and its punishment, they have a way of infecting an entire community. And at this stage, this third stage, we're not talking about sins of ignorance where someone doesn't know what they're doing or the impact that it's having. We're talking about willful sins. These are failures to love God and others that have been affirmed and brought to this person's attention several times. These are sins that undermine the witness of the church, and they tear at the fabric of the community, threatening to unravel everything. And so we're instructed to treat someone who persists in sin as a Gentile or a tax collector, as a person who's outside the community because they don't worship God or because they've betrayed their people. The meaning of this phrase has been much debated especially in light of Jesus's ministry to Gentiles and tax collectors. But throughout the history of the church, this command has usually been understood as requiring the exclusion of an unrepentant person from the fellowship of the church. It perhaps says something good about us that we experience, I'm assuming, an initial discomfort at the thought of expelling anyone from our community but consider perhaps that by this person's actions and attitude that they're actually telling us that they don't want to be a member of this community by the repeated rejection of God and the loving correction of the community around them. And so perhaps in a sense, we're just affirming the decision that they've already taken. This doesn't make our decision any easier, but I think it reminds us that exclusion should always leave open the possibility of a return. And so we, as a church, must be persistent in praying for everyone's return. There are no lost sheep the Father does not care about. And there are no lost sheep that we do not care about. This passage doesn't tell us how a local church is to go about readmitting someone who has walked away from the faith in such a dramatic fashion. But the church has dealt with this question through the centuries. How do you go about restoring a baptized follower of Christ who has eaten at Christ's table and subsequently denied the faith? The church has never had a single answer to this question, but it has seriously wrestled with Jesus' instructions when it has taken as much care to readmit someone as they have in expelling them. Neither decision should be taken in haste without a long period of consultation and prayer within your community, and in our case, with our bishop. I think it's important to say publicly that we have to be very careful when we consider allowing a person to rejoin the church. There are sins that make returning to a local church body difficult, and I don't think we're being honest if we don't say that. Sometimes people commit sins that make it dangerous for the community, and we have to bear that weight. In those cases, it might be appropriate for the church to say, while we believe that your behavior never excludes you from access to Christ and his forgiveness, you are not welcome here in this space, or in these spaces. But this is where the discernment of the entire community is necessary. And this is why the final step of this process of addressing sin resides with the entire church, because it's so weighty and everyone needs to be involved. We need all the gifts of discernment, of leadership, of compassion. We need all those gifts to make these decisions wisely. We have to work together to understand God's law so that we might know which behaviors should be bound, which essentially means forbidden, and which, lo- and which should be loosed, which means they should be permitted. But we can rest in Jesus' promise to us that when two of, or three of us get together on anything at all and make a prayer of it, my Father in heaven goes into action. And when two or three of you are together because of me, you can be sure that I am there. And so we entrust ourselves all those who are far from this community, and ultimately the work of reconciling the people to God, to God, who in his loving kindness sought out and ate with Gentiles and tax collectors so that they might find their way back to the good shepherd's fold.